Today, we continue our sermon series called Designed. The New Testament tells us that God is love. And therefore, if we're made in God's image, we are designed for love. As humans, we talk a lot. And studies show that we talk about ourselves about 60% of the time. That raises to around 80% on social media. But what aspect of our own lives do we talk about the most? The answer is love. Love is what we talk about. It's what we sing about in most songs. Do you know, if you look into the eyes of a loved one, it actually synchronizes your heart rates. If you give a friend a hug, it releases oxytocin in your body, a natural painkiller. If you express gratitude to a loved one, there's a measurable spike in your happiness. Do you know Harvard students did a study for 75 years right around the globe trying to find out what was the most important thing in life to all cultures? The answer was simple. Love. It is love. Now, when relationships break down, it hurts. Why? What causes the pain? Love. Love is the most powerful force in the world. And when that love is blocked, it produces pain. Now, at that point, we have two choices. Either we kill the pain and stop the love, or we ask God to find a, a new route for the love to travel. When the relationship between ourselves and God broke down because of our sin, it caused God pain. But he found a new route for the love to travel. And his perfect love traveled right through the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. That's how much God loves you. Even if you'd been the only person alive, God still would have come in the person of his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you so that you can know forgiveness, you can know freedom, eternal life, a restored relationship with your maker. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. Now, you might have heard it said that hurt people hurt people. But the opposite is also true. Loved people love people. The ability, our capacity to love others is linked to the extent to which we ourselves have experienced love. But the good news is this, even if you've had a really tough life and you've not been shown a lot of love, you can know this truth. God loves you perfectly, unendingly, un conditionally. And when we receive in fullness the love of God and we realize his love for us, supremely shown through the cross, then our capacity to love others and therefore our capacity to impact the world grows exponentially. It is the love of God that saves us, 
and it's the love of God that empowers us to love others and make a difference. God's love is the key to salvation and purpose in life. And Jesus makes these two points brilliantly in a parable that he told called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it to you. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out, till, he took out two silver coins, that, that was two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This extraordinary passage begins with the religious lawyer asking Jesus a flawed question. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything to inherit anything. Inheritance is a gift usually from one family member to another. Verse 29 tells us that the lawyer wants to justify himself. He he wants to try and save himself by his actions, but we can't. Eternal life is a free gift given to us by God when we enter his family by adoption through faith in his son, Jesus, accepting the death that Jesus died for us on the cross, motivated by love. Then we inherit freely the assurance of eternal life. But Jesus doesn't say this to the lawyer directly. He wants the lawyer to work it out for himself. So he replies to the flawed question with another question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, by the law, this means the law that God had given to Moses for his people to guide the moral, religious, and social life 
of the Israelites. And trying to summarize the law succinctly had been previously a really hot topic of debate, famously debated by two rabbinic schools, that of Rabbi uh, Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. So the lawyer would have been aware of the debate. So Jesus asked him, how do you summarize it? And the lawyer answers really well. He says, well, it's love God, that comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, and love your neighbor, Leviticus 19. And the order is important. It's hard to love the unlovely neighbor until our heart is first filled with the perfect love of God. I don't know what your neighbors are like. I I'm discovering that mine are sometimes a little bit odd, but I'm also discovering that I am also a little bit odd. We are all that unlovely neighbor, but it's with the love of God first poured into our hearts that we can then love those around us. So the lawyer answers well, and Jesus says, well done, you, you, you've answered well. Do this and you will live. In other words, Jesus says, okay, fine, lawyer, follow your own advice live up to these standards. All you have to do is consistently practice unqualified, perfect love for God and your neighbor. <laughs> the problem is we can't do this on our own. Even the apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, look, that which I know I should do and I want to do, I don't end up doing. And that which I don't want to do and shouldn't do, I do end up doing. It's part of our sinful human condition. And it should have been obvious to the lawyer that what he really needed to do was just throw himself upon the love of God and the grace of God to receive that free gift of righteousness and eternal life. But he doesn't. Instead, the lawyer is blind to this and he asks another misguided question, a question of clarification in the hope that he can try and justify himself in his actions. He asks, and who is my neighbor? I wonder what answer the lawyer was expecting. Maybe he was expecting Jesus to say, oh, of course, your, your fellow Jews. Or maybe at a push, he might have remembered how in Leviticus 19, it said to love the stranger who lives amongst you like you love yourself. So maybe the lawyer was thinking, okay, who's my neighbor? Probably my fellow Jews and maybe the foreigner who lives in my town. But the story that Jesus then tells could not be more shocking. It's the one we just read in Luke 10. Let me summarize it for you. A man, and we can presume he's a Jewish man, was walking from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers. He's beaten up, he's stripped, and he's left for dead by the road. He's found by three different people, but only one shows love and does something to help him. Now, Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem was served by three classes of people, priests, Levites, and Jewish laymen. Now, many of the priests actually lived in Jericho. They'd go up to Jerusalem for a two-week assignment at a time at the temple, and then at the end of that, they would return back home to Jericho. Priests were a hereditary class, they were wealthy, they, they were the elites. 
And the priest in this story, probably having just served a two-week assignment at the temple, was on his way back home to Jericho. Now, being a wealthy elite, it's infeasible that he would have been walking the 27 kilometers downhill to Jerusalem on foot. No, he's probably on some sort of riding animal, maybe, maybe a donkey. It would have been easy for him to see the injured man, put it on his riding animal and take him home. But when he sees this man by the side of the road, the priest is faced with a dilemma. Who was this man? You see, the ethnic and social markers of the day back then, pretty similar to the ones today. You judge somebody by what language they spoke, the accent with which they spoke it, and the clothes that they wore. But this man is unconscious and he's stripped naked. Who is he? So the priest is left thinking, well, I don't know this, so what's my duty now under the law towards this man? And the dilemma that the priest faces in it, we see some of the barriers that can still get in the way of us loving people today. What are they? Well, firstly, if the man was dead and the priest approaches him, then the priest would have been ceremonially defiled. That would have meant that he'd have to turn around, go back up to Jerusalem and spend one week going through purification rituals. In other words, it would have involved the cost of time and inconvenience for the priest. Have you ever been put off loving somebody because of the cost of time or inconvenience? A number of years ago, I was serving as a priest in the Diocese of London, and I was called to a meeting with the Bishop of London. And uh, therefore, I, I put on all of my priestly clothes, including my clerical collar, and I took public transport. I went on the underground train, a bit like the MRT, but that day it, it was delayed whilst I was on the train. And finally, when I, I pulled into the station and, and I got off, I looked at my watch and I thought, it's really tight. If I run, I might just make the meeting in time. So I started to exit from the underground station. The escalator wasn't working, so there were all these steps and it was packed full of people. And as I started to go up the steps, there at the bottom was a young mum with a heavy pram with her baby in it. And she was struggling to try and start to get the pram up the steps. I thought, you know, I probably should help her. But if I do, I'm going to be late for the bishop. I mean, this guy, he's important. It's not going to make a good impression if I turn up late. And anyway, it's rude to be late for a bishop, right? So I sort of put my head down and carried on running up the steps. Now, I don't know whether this was simply my conscience or the spirit of God, but as I got to the top of those steps, my clergy collar started to feel unusually tight around my neck. It was getting pretty hot and I got to the top and I couldn't bear it any longer and thought, no, this isn't right. Miles, turn around, go and help that poor woman. So reluctantly, I turned around, I ran to the bottom. I said, let me help you. I picked up the heavy pram and started to carry it up the stairs. When we got to the top, she looked at me, she smiled, and she said these words. She said, oh, 
I thought it might be you who'd be the one to stop and help. Thank you. I smiled and said my goodbye and then rushed on. And as I was running towards the meeting, I started to feel quite good about myself. I thought, hmm, Miles, you're, you're a pretty good priest after all. But then just as my pride was rising up, this convicting thought flew into my mind. It was this, Miles, would you have stopped and helped her if you'd not been wearing your priest's clothes? And if I was honest, I thought, hmm, maybe not. It was too inconvenient. But here's the thing. We are all made in the image of God. We all wear the image of our creator. We are all, as Paul says, clothed in righteousness. We all have the opportunity to reflect Jesus. So the priest, first of all, thinks, mm, it's too inconvenient. But there's another barrier for the priest to help this man. You see, it would have involved financial cost. What do I mean? Well, if he'd have to turn around and spend a week in Jerusalem going through purification rituals, then for that whole week, neither he nor his family in Jericho would have been able to collect the tithe. And they would not have been able to eat what they collected as the tithe. And even if the man had not been dead, if he'd been alive, but then subsequently died, the priest, as an act of grief, would have to have ripped, to have torn his robes. More personal cost. Sometimes cost can feel like a barrier to loving people practically. But if the man on the road was a foreigner, then under the law, the priest was not responsible to do anything. So he decides not to risk it. And he passes by on the other side of the road. Next comes a Levite. Now the Levites were assistants to the priests. And this Levite could well have been the assistant to the priest in the story. They just probably finished their uh, two week assignment together. The priest had set off first, then the Levite follows. And the priest, by leaving the injured man, had set a precedent. I mean, should a mere assistant upstage a priest? Did the assistant think that he understood the law better than the priest? And what's more, if he had taken the injured man and put him on his animal, can you imagine him riding into Jericho with the wounded man? It would have been an insult to the priest who had chosen to pass by. So here we see another barrier to loving other people, namely peer group pressure. Have you ever felt that? Maybe at work, the pressure not to befriend the unpopular person in the office just because other people talk about them and well, you don't want them talking about you as well. We all feel it at times, peer group pressure. Then comes the third person in the story. We would expect this to be a Jewish layman, but instead we get a shock. The hero is a hated 
outsider. The, Samar the Samaritans were, were completely hated by the Jews. Why? Because of their ethnicity and because of their religion. And yet it's the Samaritan who takes pity on the injured man. It is the persecuted who ends up loving the persecutor. Now, in the Greek of the original text here, that word for pity actually is better translated compassion. And the word comes from the Greek word for your guts or your bowels. In other words, the Samaritan sees the injured man and he feels the love for him right here in his very being. And the same word is used in the Gospels for Jesus, when Jesus sees the crowds and has compassion, love for them, so much so that Jesus then feeds them, he heals them, he proclaims the kingdom of God to them. So how do we get this compassion, this love for those around us? Well, it's through the love of God in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit, and it's by getting proximate to people, getting close up. Presence and proximity are the keys to loving other people. When I was eight years old, I suddenly contracted a mystery virus. Uh, the doctors couldn't really diagnose it, but I just got worse and worse. In fact, all I could do in the end was just lie in a bed all day and all night in a darkened room. And this went on for six weeks. And during that time, it was often my grandmother who would just sit next to my bed. She didn't really do anything. She usually didn't say anything. But did she make a difference by being there? You bet she did. And then one day, just as quickly as I got ill, I suddenly got better. So much so that by the following Monday, I went back to school. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but a rumor had gone around all the students at school that I had actually died. So that first Monday morning, when I went early into the classroom, the first person to see me was, was a boy in the class. I remember he turned around, he saw me, his eyes went so big and he just fell back into his chair in shock. The little girl next to him screamed out loud and immediately burst into tears. They thought that they'd literally seen a guaylo. But my grandmother's presence with me during that tough time had made all the difference. I'd known that I was loved. In rural Kenya, a place called uh, Lodwa, all of the villages in that region, they love, they revere, they talk about one man. Now, that man uh, is not a tribal elder. He's not the village chief. He is, in fact, a Malaysian, a man called Francis Teo. I, I managed to have a call with him uh, just a few months back when Francis was a, a young student studying law he felt the call of God on his life to go and serve in the mission field. So he, he wrote to tens and tens of different uh, missions, agencies and outposts. Only one replied to him, a place called Lodwa in rural Kenya. So he packed his bags, left and went on the long journey to get there. 
whilst he was there, he uh, helped the community build many things. Uh, they built schools, they built a pharmacy, they built hospital, they built community center, sanitation, fresh water systems. He did a huge amount of good through uh, a community there called the community of St. Paul the Apostle. But to this day, when they talk about Francis in Lodois, they don't mention any of that. They don't talk about all the stuff that he did. They simply say this, he is one of us because he lived with us. Jesus came to us, flesh and blood. He lived with us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Now the Samaritan is motivated by love and compassion and he allows himself to get proximate, to get close to the man in need. It's difficult to love at a distance. And what it means is that the Samaritan is able to save the man's life. To whom might the Lord be asking you to get proximate and close? I know so many of you do this already. I'm, I just love the way that so many of you help one another and love one another practically in connect groups, in your communities, your families, your schools, your workplaces, through the food bank, etc. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you. But who today specifically might the Lord be laying on your heart to get close to and to love practically? There's something about being there, about being present that is so powerful. It's why God came in the person of Jesus, flesh and blood into the mess of this world, instead of just appearing in the sky as some sort of spiritual Zoom call. Likewise, let our love be incarnate. Actually, in the story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan himself is a sort of representation of Jesus. He saves the man's life and in so doing is prepared to pay the price. The Samaritan gives the innkeeper two denarii. That's about uh, two days wages. It was enough for about a week's board, if not more. And he says to the innkeeper, look, if this is not enough, then when I come back, I'll pay you anything extra. And this was important. You see, innkeepers were pretty notorious back then. And if any lodger could not pay their bill, then innkeepers would frequently seize them and sell them into slavery. And this injured man, he didn't have any money. He didn't even have clothes. He couldn't possibly pay the cost. And that's a bit like us. We have no means of paying the debt of our sin ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. But Jesus has paid the price on the cross, dying for you and for me in our place so that we can live and be set free from death, from sin, and even set free from addiction. And what's more, the, the Samaritan does this. He pays the price, but at great personal risk. You see, if a Samaritan just rocked up at the inn, he was in danger, 
Why? Well, inns weren't in the middle of the wilderness. They were in Jewish towns or Jewish villages. If a Samaritan went there, he'd be seen as unclean and often stoned. And what's more, can you imagine this scene? A Samaritan rocking up in a Jewish town with a beaten, half-dead Jewish man across his riding animal? He's going to look guilty. He'd be lucky to get out alive. But Jesus went even further. He gave his life for you and for me on the cross that we might in turn have eternal life, freedom and restored relationship with our maker. Now, the shocking thing in the story is that the Samaritan is the neighbor, not the wounded man. When Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three was the man's neighbor, the lawyer can't even bring himself to utter the words, Samaritan. He says, uh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus finishes the story with the words, go and do likewise. We see that the question, who is my neighbor, is actually the wrong question. Rather, we must ask ourselves, to whom must I become a neighbor? And the answer is anyone who is in need, regardless of ethnicity, religion, language, or background, even if it costs us. How is this possible? Well, not by the law written on tablets of stone, but as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, by the Spirit of God, who writes the law of compassion on our hearts as God pours his perfect love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Let us pray right now. We're just going to ask the Spirit to come. So you might want to put your hands out in front of you like this. It's a way of saying, Lord, I don't want you staying away. I want your love poured into me. I'm ready to receive. And then simply echo this prayer again in your heart right now, or maybe for the first time. Pray, come, Holy Spirit. Would you fill me right now with the perfect love of God?